This is Made in Alabama, a Vespucci story written by me, Linda Edwards, and narrated by Sarah Elizabeth Wallace. A winter gale whipsawed sleet across northern Alabama. Wind shook the tiny frame cottage so hard, Connie Kidd worried that her sister's house would collapse. Ice fell so rapidly, the mud road outside glittered like a silver ribbon. Kid felt lucky her sister and brother-in-law had taken her in, let her sleep in a bedroll on their parlor floor after she was laid off. Kid had applied for jobs as a motel maid, gas station clerk, school janitor, and dollar store cashier. During interviews, potential bosses didn't really see Kid, a smiling woman, beautiful even with high cheekbones and big eyes framed by long, dark hair. Instead, they fixated on her two missing front teeth. So, like every morning that winter, she called to her brother-in-law, Jeff. Let's go make ourselves a job. When they didn't have an odd job scheduled, the duo would drive all over Huntsville in Jeff's pickup, loaded with shovels, rakes, and stiff bristle brushes, gravel, cloth rags, and plastic bags. They looked for stores or nice houses that needed yard work or a driveway pothole patched or trash hauled. They'd knock on doors and ask folks if they could work for them for whatever they thought was a fair price. Usually people paid minimum wage. Nice people would give a tip. This time, they started on a road lined with industrial parks. They spotted overflowing dumpsters at a giant commercial building. This was Axion a factory that made parts for the U.S. military. The foreman agreed to pay him a good wage to lug the trash to a nearby landfill. Jeff drove while Kid braved the sleet and wind to break down dozens of boxes, then load the soggy cardboard into the truck. When the dumpsters were finally empty, she hopped into each one and scrubbed it with detergent. Her parka was glazed with ice and her wool hat was so soaked with sleet it crackled. As she scrubbed, she noticed a slim, short man in Axion's doorway, peering over his glasses at her as he watched her intently. The man was Axion's owner, Alex Latifi. Latifi waved her over to introduce himself and invite her inside the warm factory break room. He poured her a paper cup full of hot coffee that she eagerly accepted. Latifi hung Kid's Park on a nearby coat rack to dry as he praised her hard work. Then... He offered her a job for more money than she had ever earned in her life. When Kid shyly confessed that she would be out of her depth, she had never worked on computers or robotics, Latifi waved her worries away, telling her he was impressed that she did what needed to be done even when no one was watching. You have integrity, he told her. Kid's first paycheck allowed her to get an apartment of her own in a quiet neighborhood. She asked Latifi's advice on using her health insurance for tooth implants. Latifi simply paid for the surgery and refused her attempts at reimbursement. Slowly, Latifi and his wife Beth helped to change Kid's life for the better. Slowly, she was becoming the person she wanted to be. As Kid got to know the other workers at the factory, she came to understand that she wasn't the only one who felt that way. Alex Latifi rewarded hard work and integrity with care and compassion, setting everyone he could on an upward trajectory. Latifi had come to Alabama from Iran to attend college. He fell in love with democracy, as well as with a tall, blonde classmate called Beth, 
an Alabama belle who he went on to marry. Latifi thrilled to hear stories of FDR and Jack and Robert Kennedy and was in awe of Martin Luther King. He became a U.S. citizen in 1982 after the revolution made Iran a militant theocracy. Latifi was a non-practicing Muslim in the buckle of the Bible Belt, a liberal Democrat in a ruby-red state. Here in Huntsville, he made it his mission to recruit and train workers mired in poverty despite toiling in multiple jobs. He taught his predominantly black workforce how to use computers and robotics, giving them competitive skills in a city so famous for space exploration where towering rockets lined the city's central highway. When it came to design, Latifi had a gift. He conjured up everything from helicopter seats to tank machine gun mounts, each time making them more durable and cost-efficient than the equipment made by his gigantic competitors. Thanks to this, Axion boomed. But it was Alex Latifi's terrible luck to be a romantic. He believed in America the meritocracy, where talent and moral compass were rewarded. He and his wife Beth envisioned Huntsville as the New South, too busy for bigotry. In reality, being outperformed by a predominantly black workforce led by an Iranian-American married to a blonde Southern belle antagonized some. Workers who wore their Axion IDs to the grocery store or gas station were hurt and angry when strangers working for rival companies made bigoted remarks about Latifi being a Middle Easterner. Not everybody wanted him to succeed. Latifi's impulse to hoist impoverished workers into the middle class backfired the day he hired a chubby blonde named Elizabeth LeMay as Axion's secretary. It was 2002, and LeMay had come to Alabama from Nashville, where two different employers had ordered her to resign. But the Latifis were moved by her nerve-rattling tale of fleeing a bad marriage with nothing but her little girl and a Bible— Beth Latifi gave LeMay a hand-carved cherry wood antique bed, gifts of cash and trust. Later, the Latifis would wonder if that baby girl ever existed. The Latifis arranged for LeMay and her daughter to join them on a vacation in Atlanta. LeMay didn't show. She told the Latifis she'd been carjacked. Years later, in court, she would concede the story was another lie. In February 2004, Latifi realized that LeMay had stolen $12,730 from Axion. He fired her and, with a heavy heart, contacted the authorities. But LeMay had already devised an escape plan to avoid prison time. Two months ago, in December, Latifi had approached her about missing Axion checks. Nothing came of it, but LeMay knew the trail would eventually lead to her. She phoned the FBI and the U.S. attorney in Birmingham, Alice Martin, a rising star in the Republican Party at the time. LeMay confessed that she was stealing Axion money and sabotaging records. She wanted a deal. If they kept her out of prison, she would tell them a terrible tale about Latifi's anti-American activities. Alice Martin was the right person to call. President George W. Bush's Justice Department was increasingly politicized, morphing into a political weapon, according to some. And Alabama would witness several selective prosecutions of political opponents before Martin's time was up, 
including the former governor, Don Siegelman. An ex-nurse with a button nose and overplucked eyebrows, Martin had a killer instinct and a reputation for partisanship. Now, thanks to LeMay, the man under Martin's glare was Latifi. As he went about his day, he had no idea that a U.S. attorney even knew his name, let alone that she was watching him with all the benevolence of a child slowly burning an ant under a microscope. It had been a year since America's 2003 invasion of Iraq, and the war was going badly. Death Squad and improvised explosive devices ruled Iraq instead of a dictator. U.S. soldiers were thrown into combat without enough body armor and fortified vehicles. Some desperate troops attached tin cookie sheets to Humvees in a futile effort to protect them from IEDs. Axion became known for its ability to meet crushing deadlines to manufacture vital equipment. Everything from crash-proof helicopter seats to grenade launchers to machine gun mounts. Sean Bailey was a model Axion employee, his work vest bedazzled with gold appreciation stars. Handsome and blessed with a sunny smile, some things came easy to him. But he could not afford college, and as a young black man, he found it difficult to advance from sales clerk and handyman jobs. His wife also earned minimum wage. When she became pregnant, they both cried, from happiness and fear that they couldn't support a baby. Axion changed everything. When Sean first glimpsed Axion's robot welders blazing, he was a little intimidated. But he quickly learned how to operate everything in the 155,000-square-foot factory, including a spindle that spun at 15,000 RPM. He was proud to be making life-saving equipment, like helicopter seats that could protect crew members in a crash. Latifi was a mentor and a father figure to him. Sean was impressed that the top boss would come to the factory floor, which was so grimy it had to be scrubbed twice daily, in his fine shoes and silk tie to train workers individually and encourage them. Sean had trouble getting a car due to his skimpy credit history. He paid cash for everything. When Latifi found out his employee was walking over a mile to work, he surprised Sean with a gift, the deposit needed to buy a used car. Sean and his wife bought a pretty bungalow with a patio they decorated with blue hydrangeas and pink roses. Good luck bloomed everywhere, like spotting a yard sale barbecue grill on a Sunday drive. Sean would grill burgers while his wife set the table and felt like the luckiest man on earth. Like most Axion workers, he didn't know Elizabeth LeMay. She didn't lunch in the break room or join them at birthday parties. When workers tried to chat with her, she cut them off. She saved her conversation about her rough life as a single mom for the Latifis. When the cops came to arrest LeMay, she showed an imperious side of her that the Latifis never saw. Before they handcuffed her, she ordered them to call the FBI because she had secret information too big for Bama cops to handle. Axion workers were too busy to notice she was gone. They were working extra shifts to supply U.S. troops desperately short of weapons and parts. As Axion ramped up the pace, Huntsville's big contractors grumbled to Defense Department employees that Latifi was beating them to contracts. Sean was at his workbench, wondering if the daffodils and hyacinths he bought to surprise his wife would survive the warmest days of Deep South Spring. 
Suddenly, Axion factory workers heard screams from the offices. They froze, terrified. They thought a mass shooter had invaded the factory. But it wasn't a homicidal maniac invading. It was the U.S. government. Armed investigators from the FBI and the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Command, from ICE, NASA, the IRS, the Alabama Bureau of Investigation, and the U.S. Postal Service all swarmed the factory floor. Up against the wall, agents screamed, hands on their holsters. The factory dissolved into fear and confusion. The cacophony of machinery ground to a halt. Foreman Wayne Smart tried to calm his co-workers in the chaos. The tall, fatherly leader figured it was a raid on the wrong place, but he feared the agents might accidentally shoot him or his black co-workers before realizing they were in the wrong factory. Smart was shocked when the agents began screaming insults at Latifi. They would ask a question like where a power cord led. Latifi would start to answer and the men would scream, Shut up, traitor! Beth Latifi burst into tears. She later confided that her heart was permanently broken by the sight of U.S. officials calling her husband a criminal and worse, in front of his employees. No one could make sense of it. Latifi eventually learned that LeMay had accused him of giving a classified drawing of a Black Hawk helicopter part to a manufacturer in China, threatening U.S. security. Latifi could be sentenced to 40 years in prison if convicted, a life sentence for a man of his age. On a case like this, the FBI would normally be the lead investigator, but in this instance, the Army's Criminal Investigation Division, or CID, took the lead, and the man in charge was so new to the job he hadn't even gotten his badge yet. In the coming days, CID agents seized Axion computers, equipment, records, and cell phones, and froze Axion accounts. Latifi began paying his workers out of his own pocket, but without equipment or computers, there was nothing for them to do. As Wayne Smart put it, there are only so many times you can sweep a spotlessly clean floor. Latifi was horrified and baffled by the charges against him. China already owned Black Hawk helicopters and could look at any part they wanted. The drawing Latifi shared was widely available on the Internet. But in the bizarre universe of arms export cases, that evidence can be waved away by government officials who insist the defendant should know that in a perfect world, the information should be classified. Grand jury investigations into Axion dragged on for four years, and all the while Latifi was running out of money. He felt trapped in an inertia that was alien to him. He was finally forced to lay off his 70-plus workers. Sean Bailey lost his house with the hydrangeas when he was forced to take a minimum wage job. Foreman Wayne Smart worked multiple jobs and gathered abandoned scrap metal by the sides of roads. While hoisting a crushed, abandoned car into his truck, he badly slashed his foot. He had no health insurance. His wife tried to bandage it as best she could, but while he was working, he would often see blood oozing through his work boot. Another former Axion worker lost his car when he could no longer make payments working a minimum wage job. He was walking the mile home from his Burger King shift when two men jumped him, beat him bloody, and stole his wallet. His vision in one eye was permanently damaged. Connie Kidd went back to hauling trash. Latifi had to fight. He sought out a lawyer. 
Birmingham attorney and civil rights legend Henry Froson, a man who braved death threats while prosecuting the Ku Klux Klan, a gifted litigator whose Southern charm and street fighter's instinct helped him bond with juries and disarm pit bull prosecutors. The prosecutors offered Latifi a plea deal that would cut his prison time if he pled guilty. Latifi refused. Latifi's defense had a big problem on their hands. Everyone ever accused of violating the Arms Export Control Act had been convicted, all 100 defendants. It's a wildly complex, obscure area of law that's seldom completely understood by the few lawyers involved in it. Latifi knew he might go to prison even though he was innocent. He thought of his workers. He thought of his family. And a more pressing, more physical concern haunted him. Latifi suffered from claustrophobia and was paralyzed with fear at the thought of years in a tiny cell. He began locking himself in a cell-sized closet to train himself to suppress his panic attacks. He would sit in the dark, breathing in, breathing out, trying to prepare himself for what was to come. Frosin listened as the distraught Latifi went over his story. Frosin believed Latifi was innocent, but the global law firm he worked for didn't want to assign more courtroom stars to help him with a case that seemed hopeless. So Frosin was joined by an unlikely team, a brainy young trial attorney named Jim Barger and two law school students, Elliot Walthall and Catherine Long, a former Miss Alabama. Latifi had endured four years of secretive grand jury investigations, four years of being smeared publicly. In 2008, he would finally get to face his accusers in court. Frosin and his young team scrambled to collect the mountains of documents the prosecution had accumulated. Elizabeth LeMay, the witness against Latifi, had already pled guilty to forging 15 Axion checks to steal $12,730. A Madison County judge suspended her three-year prison sentence and put her on probation. When Latifi's team collected the case documents, they finally got to review everything LeMay had told grand juries and government agents. Some of it was batshit crazy. LeMay said Latifi had ordered her to send a classified drawing of a Black Hawk helicopter part to a Chinese factory owner named Ding Dong. Latifi denied it. Equally important, China owns hundreds of Black Hawks. A factory owner could easily hire an artist to sketch any part of the helicopter. And the alleged ding-dong drawing is available for free on hundreds of engineering and aviation websites. Axion even phoned Sikorsky, the company that makes Blackhawks, to verify that the drawing is not classified. The prosecution refused to allow the defense attorneys to make Xeroxes of any documents they had collected. Jim Barger and Elliot Walthall were let into an office where the prosecution's notebooks, paperwork, and computer records overflowed from tables and piled up on floors. They said we could take notes, Barger remembers. As Barger read through the lead CID investigator's notebook, he was shocked by what it revealed. The handwritten entries focused on Latifi's support of Democratic candidates and charities supported by Democratic officials. Across town, the doorbell rang at the house of Carrie Warren, a longtime colleague of Latifi. 
His wife answered the door, thinking it was the Avon lady bringing her some bubble bath and mascara. It was ten federal agents with a battering ram. For years, Warren had road-tested Axion parts in his small engineering shop. The agents kept yelling at him that Latifi must be doing something dishonest because he was able to offer Cadillac quality at Kia prices. Warren was threatened with prison if he didn't testify that he had falsified a progress report for Axion. Warren couldn't afford a lawyer, so he agreed to plead guilty. When the trial started, the courthouse elevator was broken, so the law school students had to lug the defense team materials up flights of stairs. They missed the second day of trial to be sworn into the Alabama State Bar, but they were there for most of the mayhem. At one point, courthouse staffers say a prosecution witness decided she was too mentally unstable to testify. When prosecutors hesitated to excuse her, she curled into a fetal position on the courthouse floor and shouted gibberish. Some onlookers said she was speaking in tongues. Others insisted she was just yelling, leave me alone, in pig Latin. Prosecutors decided not to call her to testify. Each day, a caravan of SUVs and huge sedans would disgorge beefy men and women in matching polo shirts who would pack the court. They muttered insults at Latifi, like, the bastard's going down and rot in hell. Frozen told the bailiff they were nut jobs, but they were far more powerful than mere nut jobs. They were U.S. federal government employees. This polo-shirted mob worked for the Defense Contract Management Agency. The DCMA is responsible for making sure defense contractors manufacture safe, effective equipment, housing, and weapons for U.S. troops. DCMA workers should have been too busy to harass a small businessman on trial. That year, defense contractor giants were under fire for building showers for troops in Iraq that were so shoddy, soldiers were electrocuted and killed when they turned on the water. Behemoth contractors like Halliburton and KBR were accused of transporting soldiers' drinking water on flatbed trucks loaded with decomposing bodies. Yet each day, dozens of DCMA workers trekked to Latifi's trial, muttering racist terms and heckling defense lawyers. Prosecutor David Estes, an Iraq War veteran himself, and Frosin met with the judge. Together, they agreed that the most vocal DCMA member should be banned from court. The woman kept calling Frozen an asshole. She told one of Latifi's daughters her dad would die in prison. The daughter began weeping. Latifi had wanted his children to attend so they could see for themselves he was not a crook. But this is not what he had imagined. Through all this, the calmest person in court may have been LeMay. Frosin was struck by how smug she was while testifying. She had already admitted to sabotaging Axion records and computer data. She said that she couldn't remember what accusations she made against Latifi and Axion. She replied, I don't remember, to most questions. Beth Latifi confronted LeMay as her ex-employee came out of the restroom. Beth asked LeMay why she was trying to destroy them. Court personnel immediately intervened, hustling the two women to opposite sides of the room. But two witnesses say that LeMay simply replied, I do what I do. On the second day, Carrie Warren took the stand to testify he'd falsified a progress report for Latifi. 
but the judge quickly determined he was innocent. He was allowed to withdraw his guilty plea, but was forced to sell his business and lay off his workers to pay his legal fees. On day five of the trial, prosecutors unleashed their Perry Mason moment. They brought a giant blow-up of the allegedly classified drawing that LeMay said Latifi ordered her to give to the allegedly existent Mr. Ding Dong. A State Department Black Hawk expert was called to the stand to discuss how crucial helicopters are to American troops. Frosin and Barger were given no time to review the drawing beforehand. Barger asked the expert if he noticed any important stamps or notes on it. The expert nodded and pointed to a stamp on the bottom left corner. It says, unclassified. The courtroom was dead silent. The unclassified mark was so obscured by notes and other stamps, none of the investigators had noticed it. The judge climbed down from the bench to see for herself. And with that, she threw the prosecutor's case out of court, dismissing all the charges as baseless. The case had crashed and burned. As Latifi walked out of the courthouse with his family, he knew the first people he'd call would be those who'd been hit the hardest. It would take him years to rehire the crew, but he would do it. Because Latifi had learned that the America he believed in is not a given reality. It is a choice. And it is a choice that he would keep on making. Keep on making.